A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Two Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before we go to today's episode, I just want to, to announce that in my visit to New York next week, Hanukkah, I will be uh, giving a tour uh, open to the public where you have to sign up. So I'm going to post the link on both the Jewish History Soundbites Twitter account and on the WhatsApp group. Um, you can sign up or you can email me at ygebss at gmail.com. The tour is going to be of the Mount Judas Cemetery in Queens. It'll be a tour of Kivrit Sadikim, the history, the stories about these amazing people. And we'd love to meet the listeners and, and have a great tour together. It's going to be next Wednesday uh, morning at 930 Wednesday is December 25th, um, so it's the holiday. Okay, some people have off. 9.30 in the morning till about 11, 11.30 at the Mount Judah Cemetery, and I'm going to post the sign-up forms on, again, the Twitter and WhatsApp of Jewish History Soundbites, or you could also email me for questions and details at ygebss at gmail.com. Looking forward to uh, meeting some of the listeners in person. Moving along to today's episode, it's going to be a little bit about a yard site. Haven't done that in a in a while, and we're here between two major uh, major holidays, I guess. There's Yotes Kislev, which is uh, spoke about a little bit in the last episode. Um, you know, the Chag Geula, the the Rosh Hashanah Lechasidus, the day the Alter Rebbe got out of jail, and then we have a break in the middle of one day, and then we go to Chafal of Kislev, which is the another Yantif for the Satmarev, also getting out, this time getting out of the Holocaust, leaving Bergen-Belsen, and the train rolls over into Switzerland. Uh, Satmarev was saved on the Kastner train, and that's, of course, uh, a great story in itself. So you have two great Hasidish Yomim Taivim, Yotes and Chafalov, and Chaf is kind of stuck in the middle. Came along a bunch of years later, and Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner, the great Chaim Berlin Rashiva, the great thinker and um, tremendous personality, uh, died on Chaf Kislev, and that you know fit right in. So now it's the whole the whole three days, and Rabbi Hutner is actually the perfect fit 
uh, because he he kind of had a Hasidish side to him, which we'll get to, or at least a Rebbeish side. I don't know if a Hasidish side. And he also he also got out of a tight situation. He was in a uh, a in a crazy hijacking story, the Dawson Field hijacking in 1970, which is also a great story. And of course, Chav Kislev is not the day he got out. He got out right before Shana. He died on Chav Kislev, but still, he he fits the part. So, talk a little bit about Rav Hutner. And he was a very, very unique personality. Um, the The goal of of um, of this podcast is going to try to explore a little bit of his the uniquenesses to him, his unique side. Such a multifaceted person, and it might even require two parts. So we'll see how much we get done uh, today, and maybe we'll go in for a second part. He's a very colorful personality. And he was also all over the place. And it's it's funny, on the trips, we go to any, you know, a few places in Europe, in Eretz in America, he was everywhere. So every time we can, like, tie it into some other period of, of his lifetime. In Poland, you know, he was from Warsaw originally. And, of course, when we're in Lithuania tours, so he was in Slabatka and in Germany. So he was in Berlin in the university in Eretz He lived in Eretz both in his early years, and then again in his later years, he lived in Nine Saratskin um, in his last year or so of his life. And of course, in America, played a major role there, and that's where he achieved most of his fame. There's so many different contexts of Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner's life. He was a very, very multifaceted individual. My wife's uncle is, is a close Talmud, and I always watch the way he refers to uh, Rav Hutner. Of course, he refers to him as the Rosh Hashiva, and there's a certain awe that that his Talmud and people like him have of Rav Hutner. The way they talk about him, the way they speak about him is in terms that's uh, uncommon by even other Rosh Hashiva, other uh, Rebbeim. It's, it's really, a, it bespeaks a lot about the relationship he had and the type of towering personality he was. I remember many years ago, I was eating by Rav David Kohn, the great... Uh, Paisik and Rav and Flatbush. I was eating Shabbos meal by him, and he told you know he's a close, very close student of Rav Kutner in Chaim Berlin, and he told me that Rav Hutner wouldn't give smicha. It was part of his his uh, persona. He wouldn't give smicha, and he said he wasn't privileged to get smicha by him. And Rav Hutner would very often send his students to get smicha from Rav Ruderman. And Rav David Kohn told me that his smicha was actually written by a Ruderman. He had his whole story connected with that also for another time. But like it was a privilege to get smicha that created also a certain aura. There were a few Talmudim who did. Shalom Freifeld, who might have been his closest Talmud, got smicha from him. And I believe, I forgot his first name, Beagle Eisen from the famous farm store in Borough Park. I think, as far as I know, he has from Rav Hutner. There's a few others, I think. Could be even a Shlomo Kalbach got smicha from him, and, um, and there's probably a few others. You know, of course, if you limit the names, then I'm going to get 20 different uh, emails. Oh, you forgot about him. You forgot about him. So I'm putting it out there. There probably are a few others that I didn't mention. So he was no question about it. He was brilliant. He was absolutely a a genius. But he was more than that. He had a depth to him and to his mind, his thoughts. He was a tremendous thinker. He once uh, he once 
you know, you know, today you have everyone going around with their headphones all the time, either listening to shiurim or music or whatever it is. In those days, people went around with books or sfarim, which one might argue is is even better or at least equal to listening to shiurim. And he would uh, be critical of that. He said, don't bring a sefer on the bus. You have a bus ride, you have some peace and quiet in your seat. Use it to think. Utilize it to, to think to yourself. Sit with yourself and think. He was a tremendous thinker. And he was very, very charismatic. He was a very, very dominant individual. Another relative of mine who was uh, closely affiliated with Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner came as a guest to his wedding. And he was marrying a relative of Rabbeinkov Kamenetsky. So Rabbeinkov Kamenetsky was also at his wedding. It was a nice celebrity wedding. And he himself had studied in Lakewood, so Rav Schneier Cutler also came to the wedding. And he told me that that uh, they're waiting for Rav Schneier to come. And Rav Yankiv Kamenetsky turns to Rav Hutner and said to him, I hope you understand that Rav Schneier is the one who's supposed to be Masada Kedushin. <laughs> and Rav Yankiv felt the need to tell that to Rav Hutner because Rav Hutner is a presence when Rav Hutner is in the room. And Rav Schneier, of course, was much younger. Um, he's he's the one, uh, he's the center of attention, he's the one in charge. So Rabbi Yaakov decided to make sure to preempt that by telling him, no, in this case, Rabbi Schneer needs to be the one to be the uh, Masada Kedushin. Rabbi Hutner grows up in Warsaw, and his family background is very, very different from the average uh, textbook about someone who grows up to be a great uh, Lithuanian Rosh Hashiva. Um... He's first of all he's in Warsaw, and even though Warsaw is famous for having members of the Eishishok Hutner family, and for many years I actually thought that it was the same family. And it's recently uh, schmoozing with the Mashgiach of the Mirror, Chadash, who's related. His mother's a his mother was a Hutner from Eishishok, so he told me that the Rabbi Hutner was not related to the famous uh, Lithuanian rabbinic family, the Hutners from. Aishishuk in Warsaw, where Tzvi Yehuda Cook uh, married into. It was a different Hutner family, but it seems that they were distantly related somehow. That's uh, that's the Jewish geography of that, which is less important. But um, but uh, his family was a combination of a Litvish father living in Warsaw, and his mother came from a family of Ger Hasidim, which is probably why they were living in Warsaw. Now, he lives in, in Varsha, in Warsaw, which is a major city. He doesn't come from a little shtetl. He doesn't have that background, which is so common to many of the other stories. He comes from Warsaw, the center of Jewish life, the urban center, and everything that brings with it. Um, not only that, but he comes from a wealthy family. His father was a wealthy businessman. And that also is different than many of the other stories who come from poverty or from simple backgrounds here. It's a certain, to a certain extent, it's the aristocracy of Polish Jewish life, living in Warsaw, living in the urban center, at the center of everything, being in a middle to upper class lifestyle. Um, that's, that's a very different type of background that already shapes him in a different way. He's born in in 1906, and he comes to Slabatka only after World War One. In other words, Slabatka's golden age lasted until World War One. Rav Hutner arrives after the golden age, um, when Slabatka relocates back from its exile during World War One in Kremenchuk, and it comes back to Slabatka. Doesn't 
reach its atta- former fame, but it's still of the very prestigious Labatki Yeshiva. He comes there at the young, tender age of 15, um, and he's immediately taken in and known as the Varsha Ilui. He's the genius from Warsaw. Um, Bianca Kamenetsky recalled in his later years uh, how he remembers when the young, the young uh, prodigy, I guess, the young, uh, the young Ilui from, uh, from Warsaw, uh, arrived, or Yaakov obviously is much older, he's about 15, 16, 17, I'm not sure how many years older than Rav Hutner. he had been in Slobodka already for many years, and here, uh, and here he remember, recalled that it made, it made, it created waves, because he was, uh, he created quite an impression. Now, he was very impressed with Slobodka, and he wrote about it, and his letters have been preserved, and we have a lot of information about his inner world and his younger years from a lot of his writings. And he writes about how uh, one of the the novelties of Slabatka that he encountered was the way they speak about the Slabatka Musr. He said they wouldn't speak about emotion, as we would call regesh. He said they taught in, in Slabatka they call it hispilus, which is not regular emotion. It's he said it, he he explains that it uh, that it's 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 how the 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 mind inspires the heart to action and the mind regulates the heart's emotions and how it's a controlled reaction and not a spontaneous one and these are the ideas that he's exposed to and of course he goes on and I definitely have a lot of trouble understanding anything Rav Hutner ever wrote, so I'm not the address for it. Um, and that's why I prefer to just say stories about him and not try to understand anything he's talking about. But it, what I'm trying to take out of it is the historical point of view is that here in the early 1920s, the Slabodka Musar is still strong. It's after the recovery of World War I. And here he's, you can tense, you can, you can sense, excuse me, his excitement about the Slabodka Musar and the Chidushim and the novelties that exist within it. A few years later, he's writing for a weekly Torah journal, Tavuna, about Slabatka Musar. And he writes how before he came to Slabatka, he understood cause and effect throughout the world. You know, how great people uh, can start wars, how a leader of a country through one small, through like a, almost a uh, metaphorical uh, butterfly flapping its wings and it causes tsunami type of thing, he says that he, it caused him to be cynical. It led him to be cynical because he was focused on the effect. And in the effect, you see such a big effect from such a little thing, uh, it, 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 uh, it, uh, it made him cynical until he came to Slabatka. And in Slabatka, they taught him, don't look at the effect, that a big effect comes from such a small thing, and look at the cause, look at what man can do. Look how powerful man's actions are. Man is eternal. Each of his actions are eternal. And he writes there that that is the essence of Slabatka Musar. He also wrote in another letter earlier in 1926 about how the altar uh, was sometimes vague and distant, which was a, a educational approach the altar had to create independence and independent thought amongst the students. And Rav Hutner writes how... It's not he. You know he sometimes is disturbed by that. He wants a closeness, and he wants clarity in his mission. And and he writes how he's struggling with the distance that the altar maintains and the vagueness of his message at times, which is also interesting because 
Eventually, in Chaim Berlin, he created a very close relationship with his students and a very clear message that he gave over to them. So he kind of, from that early on struggle, he kind of fixed that in his own uh, yeshiva and in his own educational methodology. What was interesting about his time in Slabatka is that he seemed to have been dabbling in Haskalah. He seemed to have been attracted to it and and dealt with it a little bit, and he got into trouble with the altar. He was very opinionated also, which the altar uh, had issues with. And the altar of Slobodka had his ways of dealing with boys like that, which was out of love, because he loved the Iluyim, he loved the geniuses of Yeshiva, and he gave them special attention, and Ravitzel Kutner was one of the recipients of that attention. And he had a, a little bit of a complicated relationship with the altar. The altar had his ways of dealing with, with um, issues like that that came up, and sometimes the altar would push him away for periods of time. The altar sometimes called him names. There was one time on the night of Yom Kippur, the altar said, stay away from his Dalit Amis. I refuse to go into his Dalit Amis because he's problematic. He's too involved with Haskalah at this point. And this is the way the altar educated him, by pulling him close and then pushing him away. And uh, that was because of the the consideration that he got was because of his special status uh, in the in the yeshiva, and it's and uh, so that's that's um, an interesting period in his life during his young informative years in Slabatka, and after a couple of years he moves on to Chevron. You know, the Slabatka yeshiva moves part of the Slabatka yeshiva moves to Chevron in 1924 and 25. He comes in 1925, and he writes how he was very excited to be in Chevron, to be in the breathing the air of Eretz Yisrael. He was very, very excited. That he wrote letters to people expressing that excitement. He also wrote about how much it added to the yeshiva when alumni and even non-alumni, other uh, alumni, alumni of other Lithuanian yeshivas in Europe, now they had their first Litvish yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. And these people are already working men in, in, in Petach Tikva in Tel Aviv. And they would come to Hebron for the for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, for the Yom Leroyim, and Ritzel Kutner wrote how excited it was and how it had created a certain atmosphere and it added a lot that these older people and alumni would join with them in the yeshiva in Hebron. He's actually, because of all these letters that he wrote and the way he was very expressive and very wise and clear, and he's a great source for some of those early days in Slavatka and Hebron. And, uh, and his... his uh, he forms a certain, uh, creates a certain atmosphere that we can almost feel like we're inside the yeshiva, and uh, he's one of the best sources for that. During this time in Eretz Yisrael, one of the interesting, most interesting periods of his life is that he gets very close with Rav Kook. He goes up to Yerushalayim very often to hear his shiurim. He learns with him b'chavrusa. Um, he's very greatly influenced uh, by his way of learning and thinking. And the, this, this unique synthesis that Rav Hutner came to personify later in life, that he's on one hand a Litvak and a huge Talmud Chacham. And on the other hand, he's a mystic. He's almost a Chassid, definitely almost a Rebbe, very big follower of the writings and teachings of the Maharal of Prague, a deep thinker, a certain openness to the outside world, to secular studies and so, and so on. All of that, that... That incredible synthesis was very much greatly influenced. Of course, it was Rav Cook's, I'm sorry, Rav Hutner's personality himself and his upbringing, but it was all very greatly influenced also by Rav Cook and the close relationship that he had at this time 
of learning by him, of studying by him, of uh, to a certain extent calling him uh, one of his primary rebbeim for a certain period of time. Um, even the language of his farim is in the style, a poetic style like Rav Kook, even though, uh, as far as I understood, and of course uh, I'll stand corrected if someone corrects me, as far as I understood, he himself didn't really write them, it's really his daughter, the very famous Rebetz and Bruria David, who's uh, also, there's plenty to talk about and uh, a lot to say, very interesting lady and story. But um, I, I, it, it seems that she wrote and edited, maybe along with other people, close Talmidim, her husband, Rebbeinus and David, um, wrote the Svarim of Pachad Yitzchak. But the language is very, very similar to Rav Cook's style of language in the in this Svarim. So that's a very interesting relationship, especially in light of the fact that in later years he somewhat distances himself from Rav Cook, from his whole path, from his whole ideology. Rav Hutner was a member of the Mayetzis Gedele Hatayra of Agudis Yisrael for many years, for decades, which was anti-Zionist and definitely distant from the way of Rav Kook, uh, Rav Kook's Messianism and Zionism. And he doesn't really quote him by name in in his Maimarim, in Pachar Yitzchak, although the Torah does seem to be very much influenced by him. So it's a certain uh, a certain distance that he... Uh, went away, went away from that in his later years. Even though in his formative years, it formed uh, both in a personal way and a, also a long-lasting influence on his way of thinking. Um, Rav Cook was not there during the Chevron massacre. He had gone back to Europe for a visit, um, but he did come back to Israel shortly after the massacre. And here we see again him at his talents in leadership, in initiative, and in his writing talents. He organizes and edits and writes the Sefer Zikarain, the memorial book of the Chevron Massacre for the Yeshiva. Again, this is coming from the students in the Yeshiva. Him and another famous Talmud of the Yeshiva, Rabbi Dov Katz, who later wrote the multi-volume, incredible uh, set of books, Tnuas HaMusr, the Musr movement. So the two of them take this initiative. It does not come from the Anhala. It does not come from the Rashi Yeshiva. The only member of the Anhala who even contributes to this book is Reb Chatzkel Sarna. I believe Chasman or Moshe Matcha Epstein do not. And this is an initiative of the students to write a memorial book about the massacre. And he wrote a great deal of it. He definitely edited it. He initiated the project and he organized it. His approach and what he writes about the tragedy was to focus on the good times of the Yeshiva and this seems to be as a coping mechanism of getting past the trauma, of focusing less on the, tra- on the tragedy itself, but on the good times that the yeshiva had. He stays on with the new yeshiva in Yerushalayim that Reb Sarna founds, the new, newly formed Hebron yeshiva in Yerushalayim after it had left Hebron after the massacre. He wrote in a letter to one of his closest friends there, a fascinating personality in his own right, Reb Doiv Mayani, who... Had he lived longer, would have been one of the great, uh, um, fascinating figures that ever was produced by Slabatka and Hevron, but he died uh, quite young as a rabbi, in, I think in Tel Aviv or Petach Tikva, somewhere in that area. Uh, but he's, Sir Hutner is writing a letter to him, one of the many letters he wrote to him, and he writes about the terrible financial situation the yeshiva's in, the, there's a general depression amongst the Bachrim, amongst the atmosphere in the yeshiva. He, he's not very happy in the new yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He became quite critical of the new yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He said it doesn't have a life and energy. And he recalls the old Slabatka that he remembers of uh, always with new initiative, with new energy, with new 
uh, with life, a lot more of a what we would say a bren, and he's not he's not excited there. So he goes back to Europe. He's back in Warsaw, and then eventually he goes on to Germany, where he attends for a period of time uh, classes at the University of Berlin. So he gets a university education, and there's all types of yeshivish legends about him interacting with Rav Soloveitchik when he's there, or the future Lubavitch Rebbe when he's there. It's hard to verify. It definitely sounds good, and uh, but it's hard to verify exactly these stories. So we'll move on from there. You know, he goes back to Warsaw again when he's finished his studies there. He doesn't exactly graduate or finish his studies. He's only there for a period of time. He also moves back to Israel again for another short period of time. He's a big traveler, moving around a lot. But then in the mid-30s, he's off to the United States. He moves to America, which remains his home for most of the rest of his life. He's first a short stint in RJJ, and then becomes his lifelong association with Chaim Berlin, um, which is then in the Brownsville section of, uh, of Brooklyn. It's actually pretty much the first yeshiva ever in Brooklyn. The yeshivas until then had been in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And... Um, and he is hired as a Rebbe in the yeshiva. The yeshiva is not his yeshiva originally. It's founded in 1904 as an elementary school. A few years later, in 1912, when Reb Chaim Berlin, who was the great Rav of Moscow, he was an assistant to Rosh Hashiva in Volozhin, to his father, the Nitziv, which is also a whole story. In his later years, he moves to Eretz Yisrael. He dies in Yerushalayim in 1912. His younger half-brother, Reb Meir Berlin, Reb Meir Barilan, um, who is from the Nitziv's second marriage, suggests to the founders of the yeshiva that they rename the yeshiva, which, um, um, to rename it after his brother, his half-brother, Chaim Berlin. So it's named after Rabbeinu Chaim Berlin, and also eventually they add on a high school. In fact, my grandfather, who was born in Meisharim, his parents fled uh, Eretz Yisrael, after the pogroms of 1929, after the massacres of 1929, which are not only in Hebron, they're in Yerushalayim and other places also, and they come to Brownsville. And since he had been in the Talmud Torah Meish Aram until the age of seven, they sent him to Chaim Berlin. And he described it to me, you know, and he left Chaim Berlin and he left a lot more than that uh, behind uh, afterwards. But, um, but uh, he was there for only a few months. But, and then went to public school, but he, he described to me, he said it was a small, simple elementary school, um, one of the only ones around, and his parents wanted him to, originally, afterwards they were okay with him going to public school, um, but it, they, it was a, a very simple place. This is the 19, again, 1929, 1930, uh, way before Rav Huttner comes. I don't even know if they had a high school yet then, and he described it as a very standard uh um, high school. He said that they, they asked him if, if he, my grandfather told me, he said they asked him if, um, um, if he learned Bava Metziah. Yes, he said, I learned Bava Metziah last year in Meish Aram. So he said, well, we're learning Bava Metziah this year. I seven years old, Chaim Berlin. Uh, and I guess that's like first or second grade. So he says, well, I'm not learning it again. So he ran away. So he didn't last there very long. But um, but Rav Hutner comes. There's already other Rashi Yeshiva there. Rav Yaakov Moshe Shurkin, uh, who was a Talmud of the Chavetz Chaim, um, son-in-law of Rav Yankov Kantorovich, Rav in Trenton, one of the first Rashi Yeshiva in Tervadas, was the Rashiva there in Chaim Berlin at the time. 
And eventually, Rav Hutner is able to solidify, control the yeshiva, but it takes him a few decades. And that, uh, from there, we'll take it on in the next episode, how he manages to do that, and how he spurs on the growth of Chaim Berlin, and becomes one of the main leaders, Rashi Yeshiva, uh, and writers, thinkers uh, of post-war uh, America. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours, including next week's tour in the Mount Judah Cemetery. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.